Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Lane, a host of the channel. In her new book, Collisions at the Crossroads, How Place and Mobility Make Race, published by University of California Press in 2019, Professor Genevieve Carpio considers tensions around mobility and settlement in the 19th and 20th century American West, especially California's inland empire. In this wide-ranging study, the first academic work to draw on the inland Mexican heritage archives, Carpio examines policies and forces as disparate as bicycle ordinances, immigration policy, incarceration, traffic checkpoints, and Route 66 heritage. She shows how regional authorities constructed racial hierarchies by allowing some people to move freely while placing limits on the mobility of others. Highlighting the ways that people of color have negotiated and resisted their position within these systems, Carpio offers a compelling and original analysis of race through spatial mobility and the making of place. Please join us in our interview with Professor Genevieve Carpio. I am thrilled to be talking today with Dr. Genevieve Carpio, author of Collisions at the Crossroads, How Place and Mobility Make Race, published by University of California Press in 2019. Dr. Carpio, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So before we talk about your book, could you begin by telling us a bit about yourself? Yes. So I'll start a bit with the academic trajectory. I am currently an assistant professor of Chicana and Chicano studies at UCLA, and I'm an interdisciplinary trained American studies scholar. So my early training is as an anthropologist, uh, in terms of my BA, I went to Pomona College, which is a small liberal arts school in the Illinois Empire, which is the region that I study. From there, I went on to receive my uh, my master's in urban planning. You know, as a result of my undergraduate training, I was really interested in knowing, you know, what do we actually do to solve all these problems that we're learning about um, in terms of spatial inequities. And for me, getting a degree in planning was an ideal way to go about answering those questions. And it was really while I was 
being trained as an urban planner, and I, I did have the intention to go out and become a planner professionally, that I really became fascinated with thinking about continuities and disruptions with how space changes over time. And I decided that to answer those questions, I would need to get a PhD. And I wanted to continue with interdisciplinary study. And I applied to the American Studies and Ethnicity Program at the University of Southern California. And I was there at a very fortuitous time in that it had a, a strong um, faculty in history and what we're now calling relational ethnic studies and in geography. So when I, I look at questions, I'm still very interested in, in space and in history and always with that relational ethnic lens. And in many ways, I think that my academic life um, is tied to my way of being in the world. Um, so these are very closely related to one, in, one another. And that goes back to, again, my experience as an undergraduate at Pomona College. I actually grew up um, in the city that neighbors Pomona College, which a bit confusing, Pomona College is in the city of Claremont, and I grew up in the city of Pomona. Um, Claremont is a very much more wealthy, um, much more middle-class uh, white community than the one I grew up with. And they were so close to one another um, that I was really curious about how one city could have so many resources and the other, which is just divided by a freeway, um, could, could have so many less. Um, so throughout my, my training, I was interested in these, these regional questions about inequity. Um, and I think part of why I do this through a historical lens is because my, my father's family goes back several generations in the region. So they immigrated to California following the Mexican Revolution. And my mom is a what we call a New Yorican. So she lived most of, most of her life moving between New York um, and the island of Puerto Rico. So um, just a little bit about my, my background there and how it connects to my academic interests. Well, that's one of the things I love so much about American studies, that it is this large enough umbrella that it, you, know, you bring to it a background in, in anthropology, history, urban planning, um, and you know, other aspects of interdisciplinarity. And this book is, is very much uh, a product, I think, uh, of those trainings. You bring all of those different perspectives to bear in your conversations. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think with with any book, um, they're always partly autobiographical as well, even when we aren't explicit about it. Exactly. I always tell students, right? There's a reason if somebody's going to bother to write an entire book, they, they have an agenda and that's not a negative, right? But everyone comes from a certain position or, or we wouldn't spend the time to type all these words. I agree. You need a real passion and commitment in order to um, to write a book because it's such a, 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 a long labor of love. And I think that's when you get the best text from there. They come out of those passions. Definitely. Well, well, let's talk about this labor of love. Let's talk about collisions at the crossroads. So how did you get the initial idea for this book? Yeah. So my book looks at how place to mobility have shaped contests over power um, in Southern California. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in how different types of movement take on racial meaning and contests over those meanings. And how I came to that understanding was that I, as a, as a college student, I would travel back and forth between um, Claremont and Pomona. It's not a very far distance, just a 
I could walk it if I really wanted to, um, but maybe about two miles. And I started to encounter these traffic checkpoints. So as I was crossing into the city, there would be these long lines with police cars and um, officers asking to see our driver's licenses. And the stated reason for the checkpoints was that they were to check sobriety. Um, but they were overwhelmingly held in Latinx majority corridors in the middle of the day, far from bars and pubs. So it was very clear to me that the way the checkpoint was functioning on the ground uh, was not in a way that was to stop drunk drivers, of which they stopped very, very, very minimal amounts, um, but rather was about policing and criminalizing uh, a certain type of mover in the region. And uh, this was partly because of, at the time, drivers in California who were unauthorized immigrants were not allowed to have a, tra a, a driver's license. So by and large, that was the group that was having their cars impounded, that was having heavy fiends levied upon them. And there's a lot of um, activism that occurred as a result um, of that disjuncture. And this type of criminalization was occurring at the same time as the region was experiencing this growth in Route 66 nostalgia. So we could see this in a number of ways. For instance, there were car shows and street signage that was demarcating the route. Um, but these two portrayed just a particular type of driver that was being celebrated. In particular, it fixed that history of the region at a time when it was imagined as white and middle class, while the reality of the region at the time was very far from that type of demographic makeup. So it actually distanced it pretty far from its present. So it was a combination of seeing these traffic checkpoints that were criminalizing Latinx motorists and these forms of nostalgia and heritage that were celebrating white drivers that made me curious about how one form of driving or, or more so driver could be celebrated and the other could be criminalized in such extreme ways. How did these narratives exist one another? What was it about that relationship between race, place, and mobility that allowed for checkpoints and this form of heritage to exist alongside one another? Um, so I was really interested in getting at the crux of that question. So how did you go about researching that question? What did your research for the book entail? So I, my research was expansive in scope. So I was interested in looking at these forms of movement, movement and meaning making over the 20th century. And because I was working in a region that has largely been defined by different forms of movement. I focus on a part of Southern California that is known as the Inland Empire, which encompasses Riverside, um, San Bernardino, and parts of LA County. And for many different reasons, the functionings of this region have functioned on effective, effective movement in and through it. But the Inland Empire has not had the same kinds of um, institution building that we've seen in larger cities like Los Angeles. So my research really had to be expansive in scope. So I look at, I think, over 50 archival and manuscript collections. These include collections like the National Archives and Record Administration, the Huntington Library and their um, ephemeral collections, as well as the works of certain Chamber of Commerce um, representatives, 
the Japanese American National Museum. Um, but I also had to look at community organizations to build up those, those stories that hadn't been written about elsewhere. There's very little, um, with some notable exceptions, written about this place. So I was in museum basements, um, at historical societies, looking at their private collections. I even went to a private boys' home um, and was able to get access to their pupil records, um, city hall records, things like ordinances, as well as city dockets and um, court cases. Um, also, because of my background in planning, I was very interested in what can we learn by looking at the extant built environment so very often I would visit the sites to see, you know, what remains of these places to get a sense of how close different sites were to one another, what was their relationship to the infrastructure around them. Um, and alongside the built environment was looking at maps. I've always been really interested in how we represent um, spaces through cartographic representations and how those then can be very powerful in terms of shaping how um, place development unfolds over time. And so these are one of the non-institutional sources that I, I look at, the built environment and maps. Uh, but also, I'm very drawn to popular culture, so no, novels, songs, and the ex existing um, built environment, as I mentioned. And all of these offer insights into the relationship between place, race, and mobility. It's really those stories, those relationships I was looking for um, whilst, whilst going through my sources and data. Well, and you mentioned the Inland Mexican Heritage Archives and that and you were the first scholar to, to use those in a scholarly work. So how did you find those? And then how did you go about using them for the book? Yeah, so uh, in the book project, I draw on a lot of my experiences as a public humanist. So at the same time that I was working on my PhD and, and years before that, actually, I was uh, extensively involved in local organizations like the Historical Society of Pomona Valley, um, the Southern California Library, which is a social justice archive here in Los Angeles. And it was in the course of working with those organizations that I learned about Inland Mexican Heritage, which is this incredible grassroots effort to document, preserve, and share the stories of Mexican descent and indigenous communities in the Inland Empire. And a lot of that work is really the spearheaded by Antonio Gonzalez, who grew up in the city of Redlands, and started to interview his elders, um, folks that had worked in the historic citrus industry, and people in particular who had been impacted by freeway development. So I became involved with them, um, I guess it's been about 15 years ago now, um, as, as this college student. We worked together on a documentary called Living on the Dime, which looks at uh, freeway development, which I guess was another seed early on for thinking about questions of mobility. And it's turned into a long-term partnership. So we've done interviews, photo collection days, public events, grant writing, um, and I've come in and out at different times. And they're, they're really wonderful and now operate under the name of Casa de Culturas. So for me, it was really exciting to be able to work with those oral histories, um, some of which I helped collect and photographs, um, in order to create this history of a region in which the archives aren't yet fully developed in terms of recording many of these stories. So it really took, again, these non-institutional sources and the works of um, 
really grassroots efforts in order to get at those. That's great. And, and I really do think it adds that the use of that and other archives really add a sense of how people experienced mobility in the times that you're studying, right? I, I always enjoy projects where people are really at the center of them. And I think this is, is one of those. So once you finished your research, what does your writing process look like? Do you write on paper? Do you write on computer? Where do you do your writing? What's that look like? Oh, I love this question. I love thinking about how other people might go about this process as well. Um, so for me, I think that the process is simultaneous. So I always start by immersing myself in in the data, reading the stories, and then I, I type. So I'm definitely a, a computer person. But when it comes to my, my edits, I, I love to print it out and take it to a different location than the one that I wrote it in. Um, and that's where the real crafting comes around, I think, in those, in those handwritten edits on, on the printed paper. Um, and I'm, I'm actually not really one for writing too much in my office, but I like going to places like coffee shops where you know there's that background noise. And it's almost like being at the gym where it's like, oh, there are other people are working too. So I'm going to write as well. And we're all in our zone together, but separately um, that I really enjoy. And then the other place I really love to write, and I think this is a matter of just how I, I grew up. I always did my homework on the kitchen table. And so now as well, I, I love to work in the places where I eat. <laughs> so I think that's part of the, the coffee shop appeal, but also just in, in my home kitchen table. I have, you know, a formal desk and everything, but somehow I always land up in the kitchen to do my most earnest writing. That sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> we, have, we have all these desks and then the kitchen table gets used for everything. Exactly. Well, now let's turn to the book itself. Um, so you opened the book with the story of lowriders being banned in 1993 from the Rendezvous, a yearly celebration of Route 66 cruising heritage in San Bernardino. And, and I found this especially interesting because I spent my adolescent years in Bakersfield, which is in the Central Valley, not in the Inland Empire, but also has a really vibrant lowrider cruising culture. And so, you know, it sort of grabbed my attention immediately that this was the story you started with. So what made you decide to open the book with that event? First, I'll say I really have to like hold back because all I want to do now is ask you about Bakersfield. <laughs> but part of why I was drawn to opening the book with this story is because in so many ways, this event is where the question started for me. So it's where I needed to start with the reader as well. Um, so, you know, I had mentioned that the motivation for this book came from seeing these traffic checkpoints occur alongside these, this growth in Route 66 heritage. And this, this rendezvous is just the, the, the mother of that. <laughs> it is the mother festival of the mother road. It brings um, half a million people to the city of San Bernardino to celebrate Route 66 heritage and I had learned that in the 1990s, they had started to prevent lowriders, which we can understand as a popular car subculture, um, particularly amongst Mexican-Americans. It had prohibited them from being a part of the festival. Um, and this was seemed incredibly ironic to me because 
I, I knew that there was actually a very long history of Mexican-Americans on Route 66. And officials had stated that it, they prevented them because it was inauthentic. And this also, of course, um, brought a lot of contestation from Mexican-American lowriders themselves. And they actually organized their own festival um, just a, a, a a few bits down from the downtown rendezvous, which was held in the downtown. And they held their own festival in Mount Vernon, which was a historically largely Mexican American neighborhood. And part of what was so wonderful about this spatial um, dislocation of, the, of their own festival, which they called Salute to the Root, was that it was held on Route 66, um, which was in this neighborhood uh, versus in the downtown. And when I first saw this this irony, this contradiction, I was really drawn to questions about place because of the symbolic role of downtowns. There's a lot written about them as sites that reaffirm um, hegemonic forms of dominance through masculinity and whiteness and the circulation of capital. Um, and when I first tried to understand what this what this ban, this lowrider ban was all about, I was turning to those place frames to answer my questions. But what I found is that it didn't answer them completely. Like, although it was definitely about placemaking, uh, it was about saying who was a part of San Bernardino, where this festival occurred, and who wasn't, who has claims to Route 66, and who doesn't. Um, it was also about, um, about movement and the meanings attached to those movements. And if I had just focused exclusively on place, then it would have turned into a very different project. So um, for me, it was really about, again, starting with that festival and starting with the contest over not just claims to the downtown and to the route itself, but also thinking about how, how does low writing as a form become criminalized? Um, how do these debates over the meaning and belonging of Route 66 more largely contribute to the way these are manifesting at the regional level. And also looking at policies that then seek to regulate those meanings and the ways people are moving. So this meant looking at things like the lowrider ban, but also things like no cruising ordinances that were passed throughout the city. Um, and particularly those that were prohibiting movement again from those largely Mexican American neighborhoods into the downtown area. So that's why I start with that event. Well, and, and I think your book does a wonderful job of examining, you know, whose movement is deemed suspicious and whose is not in specific moments and places in Southern California history. And and to sort of, you cover a, a large time span. So to lay a foundation for the book, in that first chapter, you provide a historical overview of what you call, uh, quote, the rise of the Anglo fantasy past from 1870 to 1920. So could you give our listeners just a few highlights from that wide ranging chapter? Yes. So the book itself focuses on the period from 1870 to 1970. And I structure it this way because I use the citrus economy, which was a symbolic and economic backbone of much of the region in order to serve as bookends to the, the, the story that I tell. And so in that first chapter, I'm providing some background on how this region came to be. And in particular, I am focused on the rise of, of that citrus industry um, in large part because that was one of the 
again, the drivers of economic and symbolic development, but also that was one of the catalysts that made mobility and migration so important in this particular place. Um, that was the catalyst that that drew so many migrants and movers to the region from far off places. So it made it an important place to think about immigration and migration, but also because effective movement within this region because of its agriculture um, was so important on the daily level and the everyday lived lives of the people within it. So this chapter starts with the symbolic christening of this region as how it's popularly known as the Citrus Belt, and with the visit of Theodore Roosevelt in 1903. And it's this part of a larger Western tour. So there's also some links to Western mobility. Um, we can think of Turner here, for instance. And he is asked to replant the first naval orange tree in the center of this resort hotel as emblematic of this community um, of Riverside that he he stops in. And so I I use this this occurrence to talk about one the importance of citrus and the the relationships that that creates. Um, but also for thinking about how is it that this naval orange becomes emblematic of a region that is actually quite multiracial and has many different communities laying claim to it at the same time. So we move through in that chapter some several of those counterclaims, all of which center mobility, um, which I want us to think about broadly. It's it's not just migration; it's just not movement between A to B, but all of the meanings, all of the policies, all of the technologies that enable and disenable different kinds of of movement. So that chapter looks at at those competing claims. Um, one such story I tell is that of um, Agua Mansa, which was a New Mexican settlement that, again, was already in this region and largely based on a, a small farming economy. And these settler, these Agua Mansa settlers are largely Hispanos, as they would define themselves. Um, and their, their different forms of subsistence often conflict with those of um, the Riverside colonists, who again are largely agricultural. And so by the time of this replanting of the naval orange, um, part of what unfolds is the ways that their claims to space are, are erased or denigrated, uh, but nevertheless how they continue to make claims to the regions, particularly through acts of pilgrimage. So they return to Agua Mansa, although they become a bit of a diaspora, every year for this particular festival around the church. Um, another story I look at is that of the Sherman Institute, which was an off-reservation boarding school. And I was concerned here because it was very important to me that settler colonialism was a thread that ran throughout the book. And I wanted to show the ways that these claims to space by white colonists very much so depended on the management of bodies of color and in particular American Indian populations. And in this story, I was interested in how um, American Indian youth continued to remap the region. And one of the ways they do this, it was through running away. 
Um, so I was able to look at pupil records and I had seen just a few kind of slight references about, about children runaways in, in newspapers. And when I went back and I looked at the pupil records, what I was able to see is that it was actually very frequent that, that children would run away. And I was curious to think more about, you know, how might we theorize what those movements mean within the other historic context of other groups of color in this site. Um, and also to think about the agency that it would take for the students to make that movement, as well as how then did um, authorities react to that, that subversion of their, their forced containment within these sites. And then the last form of movement I look at in that chapter is that of Chinese immigrants. So it's really that play between those populations that were a bit more embedded in the region. So again, American Indians, as well as Mexican populations, alongside those claims of, of white settlers and then Chinese immigrants who, who one would think would have many of the same claims of, um, of white settlers in terms of these claims to meaningful regional development. Um, but in many ways, we can see how it's through different forms of their, their movement that they're policed and kept from entering the citrus industry. And this, in particular, relates to the passage of the Geary Act at the time in which Chinese immigrants are, especially, or workers specifically, are required to carry a pass that says that they are um, allowed to be residents, they, that they've legally um, immigrated into the area. And it's through that past system that we see the emergence of Chinese inspectors who come into the region and really much so focus on the everyday movements of those Chinese immigrants in order to police forms of movement that would have allowed them to enter the citrus industry, thus pushing them into alternative eco economies and in particular truck gardening. So all of these together represent the competing claims to the region through narratives and practices of movement. That's great. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, your second chapter focuses on a slightly different topic, and it's actually one of my favorites because so much of what it covered was just entirely new to me. I, I knew there had been controversies around women and bicycling, but I didn't know about the racial dimensions of debates over cycling. So tell me about the restrictions placed on male Japanese cyclists and the police harassment that they encountered. I could talk about bicyclists all day long. There's a really great photographic record of cyclists that I think helps just for me, create this vivid picture of what these circuits would look like. So I think what was what's important to think about when thinking about the cyclist is the context in which these it's occurring. So when I write about cyclists, it's really at the the 1890s to about 1910s. And in this period, bicycles were the peak of modernity. They were the ultimate technology. And things like sport and athletics and cycling in particular were, were used widely to make claims to, to national dominance and power and manhood. So one of the, the ways that's able to happen so successfully is that there are a number of restrictions and harassments that are placed on non-white bicyclists. So for instance, 
if we look at the national level, the League of American Wheelmen, which oversees all all cycling racing rules and regulations, actually draws a color line that explicitly um, prevents African-American cyclists from joining these leagues. But one of the ways that this plays out in the context of the American West and Southern California in particular is that it's it's levied in particular at, at Asian-American cyclists. So although there are some allowances made for people with Spanish surnames, for instance, if you look at the historic record, record things like race ledgers um, and accounts of these, these cycling activities, there are no Asian surname participants. And what I saw happen in a response is that Japanese Americans actually created their their own cycling practices. Um, So it's really in the early 1900s that Japanese cyclists um, become really active in the region and in particular in the city of Riverside. They build their own racing stadium. And this is huge because Riverside itself is a center of cycling. They are one of the first cities to build a cycling stadium. They are the hosts of regional meets. They hold parades for their bicycling events. Um, So the fact that they excluded Japanese cyclists, but Japanese American cyclists created their own tracks then, um, is actually a very powerful claim to cultural citizenship. And in many ways, it's actually welcomed by the city elite by the time that it opens. And there's participation, there's um, spectators that come. But the ways that that type of racing is talked about is that it's it's always um, denigrated in comparison to that of, of white cycling. And that's just in leisure and in sport. We can also see that on the everyday level, that municipal authorities take special aims in order to criminalize particular forms of cycling. Um, And this is really important because as I mentioned, this is an agricultural region. Much of the reason behind Japanese immigration is in order to have laborers who are working in the groves. And one of the most effective ways for them to actually participate in that labor is through their bicycle, right? In order to get from place to place. So while some modes of movement are allowed, in particular those that aid the citrus economy, others are disallowed. And we see this in the the exceptional rates of arrest and fining of Japanese cyclists through things like municipal ordinances, um, but also through things like everyday harassment. For instance, folks who had rocks thrown at them while while riding through the city. There's also a really interesting gender component here. So throughout this period, there is a consistent feminization of Asian American men. Um, And this is something we've heard other other American studies scholars um, talk about so so wonderfully. Um, And in the U.S. context, one of the ways we see this play out in cycling is that whereas in Japan, there are accounts of, of women cyclists and particular claims to modern womanhood, much as you find out in the U.S. context as well in terms of women, white women in cycling, there aren't accounts, as far as I saw, of Japanese women riding cycles in this period. And I think a big part of this is because of the feminization of Japanese men. So in order for those claims to manhood that have been so successful and prevalent um, 
through sport and through athletics to have weight, um, that means aligning bicycles specifically uh, with men and with masculinity in the context of the U.S. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, it really is interesting. That chapter made me think so much about Gail Biederman's work in Manliness and Civilization, about Jack Johnson and boxing, and just the way in which uh, boxing is seen as this, uh, it's the height of of civilized masculinity until African-American men start winning. And then the the sort of meaning of boxing changes, and, and it seems like some of those similar things are happening around cycling. And then when that when the field becomes more racially complex or racially heterogeneous, then all of a sudden the meaning of cycling starts getting interpreted in in more complicated ways than just celebratory. Yes, I totally um, agree with that. And her work was a huge inspiration in terms of thinking about manhood and masculinity and how those. Um, those themes run through what's happening in cycling circuits. I think part of really drives this, what drives this point home is that, um, you know, you have the period when white cycling is at its peak, followed by a period when Japanese cycling is at its peak. And again, in World War One, there's this renewed turn to the bicycle as a means of, you know, saving on gas, it's good for the economy, etc., and what we see again is this infusion of white sport, white celebration, and press accounts. So the meaning of bicycles very clearly oscillates according to who the writer is. Definitely. And and in this chapter, you you actually also include the story of the Harada family and their attempt to move from a multiracial boarding house to a single family home ends up leading to this court case between the Haradas and the state of California. And could you tell me a bit about that case and its implications, how you see it connecting within this chapter? Yeah. So throughout the book, I'm interested in these tensions between fixity and flow. So this means people's attempts to control their movement or the movement of others. And a necessarily related notion are different people's attempts to also stay put. Um, So one of the points I come back to again and again are the ways that the settlement efforts of non-white the non-white immigrant workforce uh, or poor whites is is consistently undermined by those with power and authority. Um, so the section that you're referring to looks at that trend through the criminalization of migrant dormitories and state policies that seek to prevent Asian home ownership. Um, so the case that I look at, um, which is the state of California versus the Haradas, in a nutshell, um, looks at a Japanese-American family, Japanese immigrant parents, Japanese-American children who uh, live and manage a a migrant dormitory. And their story is so complex and nuanced and tragic. They, as a result of living in uh, this dormitory and the the inferior conditions of that site, um, they actually lose their five-year-old son to a respiratory disease. And this motivates the family to move out of the dormitory and seek what they consider to be a healthful environment. 
And because of the racial lines throughout the region, that means moving into a household that is in a white neighborhood. So they actually are able to purchase property despite the alien land law, which denies um, Asian immigrants from, from owning property. They are able to buy a house in the multiracial district, but they choose not to, to live there because, you know, if their, their goal is to find a home with, um, with more ventilation and space and clean, clean pipes and such, that means moving into a white neighborhood. So they, they move into this white neighborhood and very quickly upon purchasing the home, they are actually sued by their neighbors uh, under the state of California. Um, and they go to court and the court debates and the public debates whether or not they have the right to, to own property because of the alien land law. And it's one of the, or the early tests of that. And what the court finds ultimately is that they do have the right because the house was born under the names of their, their citizen children. So popularly, this case has been lauded as a civil rights victory. Um, but as I write about it, I suggest that the case is actually much more complicated than that. And there's, um, there has been previous writing on this case. There's a book by Mark Rossich that's amazing um, that looks at the case and, and its nuance. Um, but my focus really is looking at the implications of that case for a multiracial constituency um, as these various stakeholders are debating who and who should not be, uh, be included in a citrus region that's imagined as white. Um, so this is a family with few options in a place where housing and race are closely intertwined. And what I found is that in order to support their claims, they exercise one of the only options that's available to them. And what that is, is a possessive investment in whiteness, to, to cite George Lipsitz. And we've seen many groups do this over time. And what that entails is drawing themselves closer to whiteness and conforming to racial anxieties that are directed at other groups. And what this looks like on the ground is that they define their fitness for home ownership in terms of what um, congeals with dominant whiteness at the time. So they they stress that they're they're Christian, that they're English speaking, that they're a married couple, etc. Um, and they denigrate those groups that are more clearly on the other side of the line. Um, specifically pointing to the the resident Mexican and African American populations and their desire to have distance from them. So. Their victory does not, in fact, dissipate anxiety that's directed at other non-white groups and even other um, Japanese Americans that have a that are less wealthy than they are. This is a family that that runs their own business. And in many ways, they're they're more elite or middle class. Um, and what it does, in fact, is is normalize those racial lines. Instead, their goal is more so to situate themselves on the other side of the line, and. One of the ways that we see how this, this normalization takes effect is even in the judge's findings where he finds in the favor of the Harada family is that he laments the inability of the alien land law to enforce harsher restrictions or these, quote, unfortunate or embarrassing um, situations. And what this does is it foreshadows the tightening of these restrictions a few years later. So by the 1920s, there's a new alien land law that's passed 
that really closes a lot of the loopholes um, that families like the Haradas had or, or other families had used to purchase property. Yeah, the, the situation of the Harada family reminds me a lot about uh, May Nye's book on the invention of Chinese America, where she's looking at the Tape family, who are this you know elite uh, Chinese American family. And again, th- there's that choice of you know, are you breaking down racial hierarchies, or are you just situating yourself um, you know one step higher on that hierarchy? Right? And, you know, we fall on this side of the line, and, and it's interesting, and, and it's really complex. And and I think one you know one of the things I most enjoyed about your book is that it really is a an example of scholarship that thinks about race in these complex and non-binary ways. And and the next topic you tackle is the way in which Mexican immigrants were in the, these early decades of the 1900s, hundreds, simultaneously cast as both especially immobile, right? Because they're not like the so-called, you know, rootless white and, and Japanese itinerant workers. And at the same time, they're being seen as especially mobile called, you know, I'm quoting you, birds of passage, um, whose circular migration sidesteps these debates about, you know, the the perils of of permanent residency of non-whites. So can you tell me a bit about those complex and and competing narratives? Yes. So for me, I was really drawn to having a project that took on a relational racial formation framework. So that means thinking about the variety of groups who are experiencing their racialization alongside one another and decentering whiteness as parts of those racialization, although that's always looming and structuring of it. So um, for this chapter, I was curious about this period um, around the, the immig- World War One and the long immigration debates of the 1920s. And what I noticed was that this is a period where now Mexican immigrants have entered uh, Southern California and they become, you know, a bulk of the racialized citrus workforce. And when they first arrive, they are very much so described as and these ideal settlers as folks who like to roost like chickens, create homes for themselves. Um, they bring their families with them. They're here for the long term. They're ideal workers. These are the types of discourses that we hear from citrus ranchers themselves. And there are these huge campaigns to help provide Mexican workers with housing on the larger citrus ranches um, so that they can stay year round on, on the ranches and there's talk about generational labor, how their children too then will provide labor to the ranches in ways that elude the idea that they can can do something different with their lives that they they chose to. Um, and but very quickly, just a few years later, um, as Mexican immigration becomes a, a matter of concern following immigration restrictions placed on other groups and the rise in Mexican immigration. Um, is that they are then described as hypermobile. So they're not settlers at all. They're, quote, birds of passage. They they return to Mexico at the end of the picking season at their own volition. They do not make households. They are not a permanent concern. So there's this real kind of whiplash that's created um, in the historical record when discussing the innate mobile racialized tendencies that are attributed to Mexican people and how the relational racial formation framework comes into play here is that the 
the um, racialization of Mexicans as either immobile or mobile um, always occurs against that of other racialized groups. So in particular, when they're being described as innately settlers, that racialization is occurring alongside discourses of Japanese immigrants and white, quote, tramps or white itinerant workers um, as themselves um, highly mobile. So whereas that is denigrated at the time, that those forms of hypermobility, then Mexicans become an ideal worker because of their penchant towards immobility. Whereas on the other hand, just a few years later, when Mexicans are racialized as these birds of passage who will innately return, that racialization occurs against that of Puerto Rican and Filipino migrants who have um, the ability, they have rights that Mexican immigrants don't because of the colonial histories of the U.S. and, and Puerto Rico and the Philippines then Puerto Ricans and Filipinos are denigrated as being immobile, as being settlers who will come and stay in the continental U.S. And there's all sorts of um, um, anti-Blackness that plays into those discourses as well, um, which I can, can get more into. Um, but basically, they're seen as, they're described as a greater threat than, again, now these Mexican birds of passage who not only aren't as much of a racial threat, but also will return of their own volition because it's innate to them, or more nefariously as a point towards that they can always deport them, <laughs> right? Um, if they choose not to leave. Yeah, it's just so interesting, right? The, you know, the, the problem with you is that you won't stay here when we want you to stay until the problem with you becomes that you won't leave when we're done, right? <laughs> then you won't leave when we want you to leave. Um, and, you know, in this chapter, one of the stories that, that really grabbed me powerfully was that you mentioned just sort of briefly that some ranchers confiscated Mexican workers' pants at the end of the day so they couldn't leave to pursue better pay or working conditions elsewhere. Now, I mean, on one level, this shouldn't surprise me, right? I've read Stephanie Camp's work about the ways in which um, you know, enslaved men and women, uh, that they're that everything from the laws that control their movements to these very sort of personal, intimate, everyday means of controlling bodies and movement, right? Um, so when I'm thinking about this, the confiscating of the pants at the end of the workday, I, I don't have a question about that, but it's just a, a detail that was such a powerful representation of the lengths to which mobility is, was restricted and that so-called you know, free laborers were in fact subject to these very intimate and and very humiliating, I would imagine, means of of employer control. Totally. I, I think it's a really great indicator of the very practical ways that um, those in power sought to curb the movement of um, of workers and also these powerful symbolic dimensions, right? To be left without pants, to be left without shoes, I think um, speaks volumes about the the power that they exercise over their bodies. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, now I'll admit chapter four was another favorite of mine. I have a lot of favorites. Um, it, you know, here you consider the significance of cars in Mexican households. And you note that in the 1920s, Mexican Americans actually outpaced Anglo-Americans as drivers 
despite, you know, they're still being denied service in automotive showrooms at the times. So can you talk to me about the economic and cultural significance that cars held for Mexican households? Yes. So often when we think about automobiles in the 1920s, they're considered a plaything of the wealthy. Um, they're used for leisure and, you know, have more of these affluent connotations to them. But when we look at the Mexican, both immigrant and Mexican-American populations of inland Southern California, it became clear to me that cars were a really big deal. Um, on the one hand, when I started to to gather data and surveys on car ownership, um, I, I found, again, that, as you mentioned, that Mexicans outpaced um, Californians as a whole in terms of their, their car ownership. Um, but they were a big deal for a number of reasons. Part of it was practical. Um, like the Japanese-American cyclists, folks who work in the agricultural industries, they just needed practical ways to get around. Um, so, so in order to move from grove to grove, or you know, sometimes someone was an agricultural worker, but then they were a cement layer, they were a construction worker, um, that really required having effective ways of getting around. And what this did was it, it created a need where even those who, who didn't have very much money would find strategies to become car owners. So this could mean things like buying used, pulling money, or there are stories about times where families went without food in order to pay for um, the costs associated with the automobile um, because they were that important on not just the, the practical level or the economic level, but also in terms of leisure. So people are using their cars in order to knit together their familial experiences across the region, which is expansive and for fun, right? There's something freeing um, to being able to move autonomously in, in vehicles. Um, and we also see this appear symbolically. So as I mentioned, I, I did this um, archival work with Inland Mexican Heritage, and we would have photo collection days and oral history days, and, and people would bring self-selected photographs um, from their family albums and such. And one of the, the, the trends that I noticed was just how ubiquitous cars were. <laughs> so this means sometimes they were just in the background. You know, there's a car because it was around, right? Um, but it also often meant that people were very much so leveraging the symbolic systems of cars in their self-composed photographs. So it very often people are actually touching the cars, leaning on the cars, sitting on the cars. So they're a part of that, that composition of the self they are portraying in the photographs that they're taking. Um, and we also see them often in songs. So I look at immigrant corridos, which I like to describe as poetry set to music. And automobiles are a big part of those symbolic systems that they use to describe life in the U.S. Sometimes in um, celebratory ways and sometimes um, through powerful critique. Well, uh, you know, that, that's a really interesting section. And it'd be nice if, you know, we had the photos to go along with some chapters, and then we could have the songs to go along with other chapters. Um, we should have thought that through since it is an audio format. Um, you know, I'd also love to hear a bit about the final section of this chapter that you subtitle The Joy and Crime of Latino and Latina Youth Behind the Wheel. 
Yes. So this section is concerned with Latino and Latina motorists in the 1930s. So whereas in the 1920s, we see, um, as I mentioned, there are high rates of uh, Mexican car ownership in the 1920s. And it's often viewed as a positive thing among citrus ranchers. They are providing garages alongside um, things that they call, quote, essential in labor housing. So, you know, this means electricity, running water, garage. These are essential. Um, And we see, again, one of these quick shifts in the 1930s where the meanings that are attached to Mexican motorists um, changes significantly where it's no longer seen as something positive or good for the economy, but rather it's considered a, a cost. So this is occurring in the context of the Great Depression. And oftentimes when we think about um, Mexican populations in this period, and if you think about coerced or forced mobilities, you know, one of the, the policies that would come to mind is that of repatriation. Um, but I was really curious about those who were left behind. And this drew me to the story of Latina and Latino youth. And I say Latina and Latino because it included Mexican populations, but also here, um, we just hear stories about other, other ethnic origin um, Latinos. Um, and part of where this criminalization happens is on the popular front. So this is the era of crime drama. So I like to describe this as um, you know, like Law and Order, <laughs> you know, but by radio. And when you listen to these narratives, they're true crime and they're based on accounts by the LAPD and they were incredibly popular um, throughout Southern California. Time and time again, those narratives paint Latino Latino youth as the bad guys and how they accomplish their crimes and how they are pursued is through their automobiles. So I give a close reading of some of these accounts in order to talk about how um, something that was seen as very normal, uh, you know, a Mexican behind a will, because something that's very criminalized and deemed as suspicious during the 1930s when the economic um, meanings and symbolic meanings of Latino drivers has changed. And I also look at things like like novels um, and what I found, and I find this at different times throughout the book, is that men and women were positioned very differently in terms of their automobility. And in terms of women in particular, that's often seen as a, a morality crime, even to be behind the wheel. So often, although these narratives talk about women um, as drivers, they're their actual driving and their presence on the road um, indicates some kind of moral failure and also a danger to other motorists. Um, so it's a really rich and powerful um, popular accounts of, of drivers um, were my motivation for this section. And then I take those, those popular accounts and I tie them back to what is happening on the ground And in particular, I'm interested in the incarceration of Latino Latino youth in this period, which has a huge spike. And in specifically, when you look at the arrest rates for for Latino youth, which are in the record described as solely Mexican, um, the number one reason why they are arrested at this time is for joyriding. 
And I find joyriding a truly compelling crime <laughs> because there is nothing about the act of driving that would betray one as being criminal, right? But it's rather the officer's discretion to deem the driver themselves as suspicious that catalyzes arrest. Um, so I think the fact that that Latino um, boys in particular are being put into the criminal justice system for driving um, is a really powerful indicator of how um, mobility is being criminalized in this period. Well, and, and that thinking about incarceration really serves as a great bridge to the, one of the next topics you discuss, which is um, looking at the, the non-white suburbs of the Inland Empire. And in this chapter, you also describe the transformation of the Pomona Valley into, quote, prison valley. It's home to four state correctional institutions, three fire camps. How do prisons fit into the story that you want to tell about this region? So I write about prisons in my final chapter as a reminder that some people's mobility, even other people of color, has often depended on the immobility of others. Um, so a large part of why these region, this region transitions from a citrus community to that of suburbia is because of the um, financial impact that the prisons make um, in the valley. My other aim is to show that groups that we often think of as the most essentially stuck in place have come up with these innovative mobility strategies in order to overcome the confinement that state forces would thrust upon them. And in terms of the, the prisoners in this chapter, they take on all sorts of innovative mobility strategies so even though they're imprisoned, they do things like create periodicals that can circulate where they themselves cannot move. They work collectively to foster family visitation across the regional divides through things like special events and advocating for buses. Um, and they even risk further incarceration by running away when living conditions become unbearable. And particularly in the 1970s, we see what we're seeing as, um, as a minimal correctional or state facility um, based on rehabilitation become a really violent, um, dangerous place for prisoners to be. And one of their the strategies they take in order to to avoid those circumstances is, is just leaving. Um, and we see a lot of parallels across time, criminalization and imprisonment uh, run through the book in some ways, and here it's the most explicit. But elsewhere, there are stories about how those who would be confined resist their own mobility. And again, we see this in the American Indian children who run away from federal boarding schools. Um, but even in the Mexican-American youth who I talked about, who would do things like manipulate their car registration records in order to avoid police arrest. Wow. So, you know, in your conclusion, you bring the reader back full circle to the celebrations of Route 66 that you started with. What is the reemergence of the Anglo fantasy past that you refer to in the conclusion's title? Yeah. So in chapter one, I introduced this term for the first time, and it begins with the founding of the citrus colony and the emergence of citrus is emblematic of the region. And part of how the Anglo fantasy takes root as the dominant narrative of the region, one that gives white settlers claims to its development, 
is through narratives of mobility. Um, and specifically, it imbues the migration of white citrus farmers with this celebratory logic um, that marks their mobility as the catalyst of meaningful development and buttresses their claims over those of other groups. So if we understand settler colonialism as a continuously unfolding project, then we can understand this revival of the Anglo fantasy past in the region's more contemporary time period as a means by which settler colonialism continues to penetrate this region, which is one of the fastest growing regions in the United States. So some of the place that we see this is through Route 66 heritage, and that's really the focus of, um, of, of this reemergence in this chapter. So as I mentioned in terms of the introduction, we see this in the growth of car shows and streetscapes, um, but also this, this regional mall called Victoria Gardens. And um, this mall, or I think they described it as a regional lifestyle center, um, really has become this tableau for the region's history. So the way that the developers created it is that it's um, an open air mall that is designed as a large square. And as you walk through it, you move through a timeline for the region that starts with it as a, a small farm town all the way to a, a modern city. And as you, you walk through that tableau, they actually incorporate um, historical images from the citrus period and, and plaques that are supposed to look as if this, this area was actually much older than it is. And in a region where many of the residents are newcomers, it provides this lesson for, um, for this place that once again um, teaches them <laughs> about the Anglo fantasy past. Again, celebratory celebrating certain times of development and placemaking, whereas erasing the long historical presence of people of color as well as uh, the native population. Um, so it creates this like nouveau mythology um, for this site that actually congeals really well um, with some of the conservatism that, that continues to exist in this place. Thank you, Genevieve, you know, for, for that and for giving our listeners such a full sense of your book and its arguments. And, you know, I'd like to know, what was the hardest part of, of putting this book together or of writing this book? For me, it's that there's so much to tell. We need work on this region. And for me, it's personally so important. Um, and there's a lot of compelling stories that I couldn't include for a variety of reasons. So I think what was hardest for me was knowing when to stop and being at peace with the fact that one book cannot and should not do everything. But that was very difficult. Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably a challenge for many of us who get so excited about the projects we're in. It's hard to to call it, right? It's hard to call it, but th there will be more books. Don't worry. Um, and I'll ask about that in a second. Um, but, but before that, you know, what was the most fun part of the book to write for you? The I think my the most enjoyable part of the writing process was you know, being in the archives and helping create some of them. Um, I really love handling firsthand accounts of the past that bring new insight into the dominant ways that we view, um, we view places. And I think one of the things I learned in particular from telling oral histories 
Um, that might seem obvious to some, but when I, I was pretty young when I was first starting these, and um, it's that every single person has a story to tell. So when writing, I was really trying to do to do justice to those stories, and I think it was really helpful to be um, able to think back to particular people, right? Um, and and th- and that was pretty thrilling for me. So if readers take home only one thing from your book, what would you want it to be? I want people to think seriously about how mobility has informed racialization. So for me, the spatial turn and place-based studies created some of my favorite work in American studies, um, and particularly someone coming from a, a planning background, those made me see my a place for myself in um in the field. Um, And I believe that mobility offers a similar promise. Um, And I think that that link between race making and mobility, again, through this more expansive approach to mobility, it's often been called the new mobilities paradigm or mobility studies, much bigger um, in other parts of the world than here. I think that link is more critical to the evolution of uneven power relations and spatial development than has been previously implied and if we follow that thread through, then we can also see mobilities and contests over mobilities as an important place to learn about the strategies and spatial claims that continue to be made by aggrieved groups. Well, and I think your book makes a, an incredibly persuasive case for that, um, right? For the importance of that of that view and of this perspective on history and, and the role of place and space and mobility within it. Um, so I really appreciate your taking the time with, to talk with me and I know that our listeners will too. Um, but before I let you go, what do you think, uh, that next project will be? What do you think uh, you'll work on next? So I have two projects I'm working on right now. Uh, one looks at the ways that mission revival architecture of the 1920s, 1930s. So think white stucco, red tile roof, how it traveled, um, and specifically, I look at how mission revival architecture works as a racial project with great fluidity, and one that informs the ongoing logics of settler colonialism across the Pacific. So this work looks specifically at uh, Spanish mission architecture originating in California, um, our revivals of it, how those have manifested in Australia, and what does that mean in a place where you don't have the same types of colonialisms or even a resident um, Mexican population. And the second project is closer to home. It's a piece about Black automobility in post-war Los Angeles um, and how Black motorists navigated the racial fault lines of the city through their cars. And this is a piece that originally I I had hoped would go into the book, um, but ultimately I decided that it was a a bigger project that I wanted to fully develop. So I'm working on it as an article right now. Oh, well, those both sound great. (laughs) Um, I will look forward to reading them and and perhaps talking to you about them. Thank you. Well, so thank you very much, Genevieve. We really appreciate your taking the time to chat today. Thank you, Carrie. I so appreciate it. 